Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, before I begin this excellent episode uh, with author Oyinkan Braithwaite, I just wanted to touch on something that came up for me. Um, as I was recording with Oyinkan and uh, when I looked into her work, um, she is, yes, the author of the best-selling novel, My Sister the Serial Killer, um, but she also does spoken word. She also does lots of illustrations. She, on this interview, is talking about wanting to do animation. She writes short stories and more. And um, it really got me to think about how lonely it can be to pursue all the things you want to do at once. It becomes lonely in a lot of ways. Um, I, as someone who does so many things, um, I <laughs> realize that can sound snotty. Uh, as one who does many endeavors, but what I mean is who's pursued a lot of different pathways, um, I have encountered the difficulty of showing people that that's okay. And in fact, that was a big part of my project starting a long time ago um, when I wanted to make sure that publicly I could demonstrate uh, a fully kind of integrated person, someone who was spiritual but sexual, um, but intellectual, but... Uh, ridiculous, um, profane and sacred and scientific all at once, that all the sides of my personality could be something that um, would be public because I wanted people to see that's possible. So that was a sort of uber project for a while. And that was definitely um, before really social media took hold. Um, I mean, there was some social media when I began that project. But not as much, and certainly it wasn't just a part of our everyday lives. Um, and I really wanted to show people, um, hey, look, this is what you can be. You don't have to section off aspects of your creativity, of yourself, of uh, what you want to do in the world, and stuff them away, but actually you can present them all. And they are all connected because they meet in you. Certainly, some of that has been seized and even destroyed in its profundity by social media, and I've contributed to that, unfortunately, um, by people who are intent on presenting everything, um, but the presentation is what ends up uh, sort of destroying some of it. The performance, but also the way that it gets presented publicly um, as ultimately a kind of uh, marketing or content creation campaign for big tech companies. Um, and so you don't get to show any part of yourself that doesn't support big tech, <laughs> that doesn't support the technocracy when you want to be a fully integrated person. And if there's an aspect of me that really doesn't like where everything is going with a kind of um, interwovenness of corporation and state, well, I don't really get to show that in my behaviors <laughs> online. Um, so in some ways, I suppose, it was a kind of naive aspiration. But it continues to be 
I guess in a lot of ways what I'm trying to do, um, you know, writing a book, having a podcast, still doing some advocacy, activism work, all that kind of stuff. But I become increasingly interested in how we do that kind of sectioning off, not just in our actions, which is important, but in our imaginations as well. The way we allow ourselves to imagine certain things and not imagine others, or we consider certain imaginings bad or threatening. Um, I do think that as a writer, that has to be one of your primary concerns, is allowing your imagination to be free. Um, But I have written things that feel threatening to me, and that's interesting because it connects back to some of the shame that I used to feel around sex when I was younger, for instance, about being attracted to men when I was younger. The way that these imaginings could be really frightening. And especially if I would, you know, allow them to unfurl into action, or if um, there was a feeling connected to them that was so intense, um, that feeling would sort of turn itself over or turn into a kind of shame or self-scolding. And I think that still happens with a lot of us. I think that we still have trouble um, allowing the imagination the kind of freedom it needs to turn itself into a sort of healthy action. Uh, there's a concept in psychoanalysis, um, just sort of briefly, that if you can't do something um, without feeling a, a radical break from the rest of your life, then there's something that needs to be healed or investigated there. So if, for instance, you know, you have sex with a stranger or if you, I don't know, let's say you like junk food. I'm trying to think of things that might seem pretty uh, innocuous to some of us. If you can't do those things without it feeling like there's a huge split from who you were the moment before you did it or who you are in other places in your life, then there's that chasm between the two that needs to be, well, uh, I don't know, spelunked, (laughs) Um, investigated, explored, or whatever. That's really important that you don't have that kind of radical break. You know, it's also important, I think, to remember, kind of like I was saying before, that there isn't really a radical break, that actually that you are the bridge. And that's something I try to remind myself of all the time. So when I when I write something that is dark, I've written some short stories, for instance, that were even sort of scarier or more upsetting to me to have written than the stuff that's in my novel. I I can feel like I've done something bad or unleashed something in the world that's not so great. But then I have to remember that is connected to the other impulses that I have in my life and the rest of me that is not so horrifying and the rest of my thoughts. And in that weird contrast between threatening and comforting or completely alien and totally feeling like me, I feel like there's the potential for, uh, like I said, the exploration, but also great discovery. Because when you think 
that there is a gap between two things, it forces you to hold them in the light next to each other. And when you do that, something really profound, a strange new shape can be offered to the world that perhaps was not offerable before. For people who have that kind of continuity just sort of in place, your rupture, your break is actually just the sort of, I don't know, negative image of the real offering. Okay, that might all sound very vague, and uh, <laughs> it is in some ways, but I'm still just kind of working through all that. I invited uh, Oyenkan uh, Braithwaite on the show because I wanted to talk with her about mediating the dark imagination, how to deal with that, what it means to write about murderers and violence, what it means to have compassion for the people that commit these acts and also the sort of fictional constructs that evoke these acts and what to do about all of that. So I'm very excited to share this episode with you. Um, now I would like to just turn your attention for a moment to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. That's how this show runs. It runs on Patreon. So please go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and contribute. Uh, this show has been running now for five years. I'm approaching the 200th episode. And uh, I can always use that help, that support, that care, that attentiveness, and that kind of reciprocity for every episode being available for free to everybody. All right. Thank you so much. And here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Oyinkan Braithwaite. Hello. Hi, Connor. Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. Well, I'm very excited to talk with you after reading uh, your novel, but also reading some of your stories and just, you know, having written a book that has quite a bit of violence and kinship of it, you know, in it on my own. Um, like, I really want to talk with somebody who... I thought maybe has to contend with some of the intensities of creating stuff like that. Um, so we'll just kind of dive in. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about how in my sister, the serial killer, but, and we'll talk about in some of your other work as well, but like, there's this, I, there's this knife that shows up a bunch of times and there's almost this idea that the knife it has like a hex or it has its own allure or its own sort of compulsory nature. And uh, what is it that you say, you know, who is to say that an object does not come with its own agenda? And I've been thinking about that a lot. The responsibility um, for murder, <laughs> the responsibility for violence and uh, what sort of compels us to do it. And then going a little further with that, like the responsibility to, you know, as we write about it and what compels us to write about it. So maybe we start there. Um, where you think the responsibility sort of, 
<laughs> draws its line because it seems to be something that you consider a lot, like in one chance as well, and other things that you've done. I just am thinking this question of who's responsible, where do we trace the cause back to is something that you're interested in. Um, this question you've asked, like, I feel like I could probably spend a day and a half just, <laughs> you know, covering it. Um, it's a tough one, I think, because I, I mean, for me, okay, so first of all, I think I want to say that I actually find it very hard to consume violence as a, um, as a viewer or as a reader. Hmm. Um, I find it really tough. Um, I had to review a book um, the other day that had very strong themes of rape and it was a struggle for me because when I review, I try to make sure I read books the book at least twice. And the first time I found myself skipping a particular chapter and then, you know, I was telling myself, you can't skip a chapter, you're going to review, you're reviewing this work. But I didn't want to read the things that were taking place. You know, I had clocked by then what was going on and I was like, I don't want to, you know, but um, in the end I had to go back to it and read it. So I actually find it very hard to consume. And, you know, the people around me, my friends, especially my friends, you know, and my husband, they find it hilarious because they think it's so strange that I create, you know, I write mostly dark you know, stories, but I can't consume it. Mm. And so I guess my first answer to that question is that apparently I find it easier to, to create um, than to consume. And maybe it's because I have control if I'm creating it. If I'm not creating it, then I don't know, you know, I've invested myself and I don't know how it's going to go. And, you know, more often than not, you don't want those things that are happening to the characters to happen, you know? And, I, and I'm and i very like, I'm like a child when it comes to, you know, movies and books, like I will, I get very, very attached. Um, so I think for me, once the character has become real, you know, I don't want them to, to see them go through, you know, those things. Um, so I think that's my first sort of, almost answer to your question. My second thing is, um, you know- Can I jump in before the second thing so we don't? Can you put a pin in that second? Cause I want to say something yeah. about the first. Like, did what about reading your own book? Reading your own, I mean, did it, is it like, um, do you feel bad about it? <laughs> because I mean, I know like I read my own audiobook and I read it over three days. And obviously there's a lot of like very personal stuff in the book, but like, it was absolutely like draining, exhausting, upsetting. And like my boyfriend took me out to dinner, like after I finished to like celebrate. And I was just like talking, I was like, this horrible thing happened in my life. This horrible thing. Like it was all I could do was like dwell on that. And he was like, I just wanted to like take you out for a nice dinner, (laughs) you know? So like, like going back over it for me and in the editing process was also very difficult. I actually had to tell them, like, I was like, you guys, this is the last go because I can't do it again. But that was more because of the personal feel of the book and the way it intertwined with violence. So I'm wondering if actually, cause I really do like reading violent stuff. I don't, I mean, I don't, yeah, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but like, I think, you know, so I'm wondering if it was a sort of flip for you where it's actually palatable for you to take in your own work, but 
it's difficult for you to read it elsewhere? I mean, I think it depends on, um, I think I don't find it, you know, first of all, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of, you know, before talking to you, I haven't had the uh, privilege of reading your book yet, but I read it a little bit about it and I, I reckon it's, it's far darker than anything I've written. So I can see why you know, <laughs> it might be rougher for you. Cause I think I, in my mind, I kind of just skate it. I don't go full, you know, full on. Um, but most of, I don't know how many of my stories you, of my short stories you've read, but um, sometimes for me, the violence is um is saying something um you know or this or the tragedy let me say as opposed to necessarily the violence um like I, I did a very short piece um and you know it was about a woman whose husband dies because the the hospital uh won't accept any uh, victims of gunshot wounds without the necessary paperwork. So they are waiting outside for the paperwork. Um, and that's something that has happened. So, you know, sometimes it's not, you know, for me, it's reading that it's still sad, but it's like, it's important that that's told. Um, you know, it's important that that was illustrated and it was important to me at the time and will continue to be important to me. So um, I guess more often than not, I don't feel like I, I have a choice. Um, it's not just gratu um, gratuitous. So I kind of, you know, I'm okay with it. Um, I, you know, so I suppose I don't know if I'm asking, I hope I've answered that as far as, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, but um, my dad used to have conversations with me about about the responsibility of a writer. Um, and he had very strong views that a writer should, um, you know, work to uplift the world that we live in and to encourage people and to give people hope. And at the time, I kind of viewed writing more as escapism for myself and for the reader. Um, because that was generally what I turned to when I would select books, you know. Um, but since having come out, I think it's dawned on me um, just how much responsibility a writer um, does have. I don't think I had a proper appreciation of it before, and it has changed the way that I think um, about writing. And I'm not sure if it's good or bad yet. It remains to be seen if that's a positive um Thing that's happened but um I do kind of understand better now that you know what whether we want to or not people do read your work and they do take things away from your work I mean we often bring things into the work that we read and then we take things away and we can't pretend like that doesn't happen that's just a part of the process whether we care about it is a different thing but it's definitely you know once you've put something down on paper it's there and it's there forever yeah, so then maybe we move on to the question of responsibility. I, you know, I might I might have started asking you the question a little bit of a weird way, which was talking about the knife, because I was thinking about, um, I just was doing like a little bit of 
like I, I really know very little about Legos to be honest. And so I was just doing a little bit of like, look into it and, you know, see what's, what resonates with me as someone who, to whom that place is quite foreign before speaking with you. And um, I came across a story, a 15 year old um, nanny who uh, is said to have killed the baby that she was watching with witchcraft by saying its name four times. But then she sort of traced back her relationship to this cult called Ogoloma um, that she said that she was inducted into as a child by being fed these like, you know, black magic biscuits basically, or whatever. And these witchcraft biscuits and so on and so forth. But I, when I didn't exactly go looking for that, but like when I found it, I was thinking about the cursed object in your, in your book. And I was thinking about the person who, whatever we believe of her story or not believe of her story, the the expression was that I was compelled to do this. There was nothing I could do, but, ex, ex, you know, express what was, mm. you know, compelled and compulsive mm. in me. And I was in danger if I didn't do this. Mm. And I just thought like, well, this is like a question that you, you deal with as a writer all the time. And now very interesting to say, <laughs> what about writing the violence? And you're like, well, we have to write it because it's happening. So, so there is the the real compelling <laughs> need to to express it in the writing. So, yeah. Anyway, I'll I'll step back and maybe let you talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a balance. You know, like I said, I, I try not to, and for the reader, but also for myself, I try not to delve too deeply into the violence or into rape or anything like that because, um, I don't want to be. You know, you spoke about how you know even the editing process was heavy i knew going into writing my sister circular that i didn't want to be in a space of just misery for the time it was going to take me to write it and work on it i i didn't want that for myself that was where i was at that time um so i think that's why there's a sense of lightness still with that story i mean people say it's funny um i don't know if it's ha ha funny but it's it's because at the time i was writing it I I knew I didn't set out to write a book that was funny, but I I also wanted to deal with these dark topics in a way that would still be you wouldn't walk away and have this dark cloud just sitting on you. That's not what I wanted for myself or for my readers. Um, so I think it's a balance, but it's it's for the writer to determine where they're because if you're if you go all the way and it's just misery from beginning to end you know some people would argue that that is that can be some people's lives but it might be that if there is something you want someone to take out of it they might find it very difficult because they're just depressed they're depressed after they finish reading your work and they're not able to absorb anything outside of that but then you also don't want to treat it like it's all it's also not very interesting to have a character who's not facing any adversity, who's not going through anything, who's happy from beginning to end. There's no story there. So it's, I think it's a balance, but it's also, you know, it's a very personal, like I would never tell a writer, um, you've put too much of something in this story because they know why they made the choices they made and it's up to them to, you know, to to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, so one of the guests that I had on the show, who's, um, whose book I actually want to talk about for another reason was 
this writer, Dan Gretton, who wrote this massive book, it's over a thousand pages called I, you, we, them. I think it's over a thousand pages, maybe I'm wrong, but it's a nonfiction book about the desk killers, people who murder by policy, sign a sheet of paper and it has these horrible, I mean, you know, know, the people who really are responsible for the most murder, you know, in the the world, not, not someone's sister with a cursed knife or whatever, but, but the, he said, like, the book is also filled with these like nature writing passages and him taking walks and hanging out with his friend and having conversations. And he's like, I had to do that because there was no breathing room. Like if Mm. I didn't, this book is so horrific. And it is, I Mm. actually had to start reading it many times. Mm. There's not any breathing room for the reader at all. Mm. And um, so there is plenty of room to sort of breathe in and move around in, in your book, even though some of the chapters are so small, you know, um, short, you know, sentence or, you know, whatever, there still is a lot of, maybe that is the room, maybe the negative space is the room for the the reader as well. But you're right, like, it, it can't just be, and that's something I struggle with, like, <laughs> there's not a lot of breaks in my book, <laughs> there should be different <laughs> kinds of breaks, <laughs> but there's not a lot. So I think, I think I understand your need there. And it's totally appropriate, I think, and totally right. Yeah. Um, but the, the responsibility for the violence then maybe, cause you're going to go on to talk about that a little bit. Like where, where do we say, you know, that line for a character is, but maybe a person in life and, and therefore, you know, what metric we use to forgive and, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a life. <laughs> It's a life question. I didn't even think that's the right question. That's like a life question. Um, you know, again, I just, you know, I ten mean, minutes go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay. So, I mean, for one thing, since I'm Christian, and I, because of that, I believe that we don't get more than we, whatever we go through, we have the capacity to survive it. Um. You know, but I'm a big believer, maybe also because I'm a Christian, I'm a big believer in the happy ending. You know, it mm. it, it, it allows me to be a big believer in the happy ending. And I, um, and possibly too much Disney, um, <laughs> consuming too much Disney in my life. Um, but yeah, I like that. And I suppose that's the other thing about how dark a story can get, you know, because if you think about a story, the way that we think about life, you want a part of me wants to believe that, okay, this person has been through, I mean, the character, but even just life, even just talking to friends and family, you're like, this person has has gone through shit, so much shit. And you want to believe that they will come out of it and there will be something good. There'll be something good for them at the end of it. Um, So if I've gone through, if I'm reading a book and I've gone through hell with this character and then I get to the end, and it's bleak, I'm like, oh, wait, like, why would, you know, why? You know, it just, it leaves you feeling a sense of hopelessness. Um, and again, you know, it's a creative choice. We're in a creative industry. So maybe that's what the writer did want you to feel, a great sense of hopelessness, you know, um, but it's a tough thing 
to feel even when it's not real I mean it's not the story isn't real but your emotions are and you know the way you respond to it is real um so I guess for me like I think more often than not my creative choice would be to you know no matter how dark a piece gets to leave a bit of hope even if it's just a little teensy drop of hope, you know, at the end of it. So some, so that the person has something to hold on to, you know, and even if they're not sure, um, because I'm a big, I'm not a big believer in painting, you know, writing the whole thing out for the, for the reader, like saying, this is what happened and this is what happened and this is what happens. I'm not a big believer in that personally. So even if you're not sure, let there just be something that maybe you can hold on to and just hope, hope for the best. Um, so I don't know. I suppose I'm a romantic at heart. That's really what it is. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I'm glad you brought up, um, your, you know, I'm glad you brought up Christianity because it was something that I was going to bring up myself. Um, because I, I was thinking like, okay, so if I write it to write something horrible or something horrific or frightening, so it, like it's almost as if the possibility of of Christianity or the resurrection or miracles actually needs to not like there needs to be a possibility that it's not real. Like so for me, it's also a Christian probably or maybe I don't know in a different sort of Christian universe than than yours <laughs> or whatever. But like because mine is you know weird. Everybody's you know has their its own tones and contours yeah, of weirdness. All, I mean, when objectively we're all weird, so it's, <laughs> it's right, right. But like so, when I think about it, you know, I think well, th- since that's true, that the, the the Christian aspect of you know in in my understanding is true, then like um then no horror story really or or violence really can get to anything right because you stand inside that and you understand there's this this beauty so and this, I don't, okay so the thing is yeah. again it's um so you know there's this um passage that talks about how the rain falls on the good and the bad alike which is basically that you know it's just saying bad things will still happen you know it doesn't um at least you know it doesn't preclude you from bad things happening so for me again it's just that the whole thing is supposed to be you know that at the end (laughs) at the end of it all um that's where your happy story is supposed to be might not necessarily you know the hope is that you won't have this miserable life that's not anybody's um but to think that nothing bad will happen is also not true bad things will happen you will lose people and I and I think that's the scariest thing about it because you want to think most people I think who have some kind of faith want to believe that that will save them from going through certain things um and you know and that's what we all want for ourselves I think whether or not you you believe in a god or you don't believe in a god you there's certain things as human beings we'd rather not go through if we had a choice you know um but I think even if you're an atheist, at the end of the day, many people just want to think that it's going to be okay eventually. Because otherwise, you know, we would all just jump off bridges 
if we thought that there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Like there's as human beings, just as in the book, we just need to keep hoping. Like what's what what makes us turn a page? What makes us next episode of a series? What makes us what keeps us going is just this desire to see how things end. How do how will they end? That's all we want to know. And we would like to think that they end well. Um, so I think that's, you know, at least that's just how I kind of interpret that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I was thinking a lot when I read my sister's serial killer about the, you know, all this sort of bondedness between the two sisters and how like they're kept having to be these acts of forgiveness that weren't actually just one way that weren't just for Iola's sake. But I was thinking like, it's this weird thing maybe when the challenges come up in life, when the things that are very difficult or even, you know, uh, horrific happen, like we get this weird, you know, shaking of, of faith, shaking of how things might go for us. And actually the question is, maybe you wouldn't phrase this this way, but I would say the question is like, can I forgive God now? Can I forgive like this thing that is supposed to be good, that is supposed to be delivering my life? Like, can I actually bring the act of forgiveness to the entire sort of belief system and spiritual realm in this moment? And I think that that's for me, why some of those moments were so potent um, in, in the novel, because I just thought, well, this would really shake me, you know, if, if I knew somebody that had, I'm not giving a spoiler away to anybody, this isn't the first <laughs> line of the book, but if I knew somebody who did it once and again, you know, something terrible once and again, and I, and I love them, you know, it wouldn't shake my relationship with them, of course, but it would shake my faith in everything, you know, that I, I believed in. And so I'd be called on to forgive the entirety of existence, not just, not just my sister, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's a really hard one. Cause it's, it's, um, I mean, I think even 2020, right. Shook a lot of, not just our, you know, just our perceptions of what our reality was, you know, I, I feel like 2020 was the year where a lot of us realized, hang on, I didn't, I don't have the control that I thought I had, you know? So for example, all of a sudden you can't leave your home. You're not allowed to leave your home. You know, you can't, you you know, a lot of people lost jobs. It's just the prior to 2020, we probably, I mean, I had made plans. I made a lot of plans for 2020. There were things I got (laughs) married in 2020 and it wasn't, you know, there were certain things that I thought what I was going to be able to do in 2020 that I wasn't able to do. And it was taken out of my hands. It wasn't as if I made the conscious decision to not do those things. And I think that's when you're like, hang on a minute. I don't have the control over my life that I thought I did. And it also gave me a greater appreciation for politics because we kind of go through life. When I say we, I'm talking about myself, <laughs> but we, you know, I I feel like I've gone through life thinking that I had control. And then, you know, you realize that actually people can, just like this, your life can change. And it's, it's not, it's not a decision you made. Somebody else has decided it. 
Um, and I think that can change, that can shake your sense of self. And, you know, it took a while to kind of be like, and I suffered, you know, prior to 2020, I, this might sound really, you know, for people who struggle with mental health regularly, you know, I mean, it's a lot because prior to 2020, I don't think I ever really, I could say I had gone through, I had had anxiety. I, I don't think I could have said that before 2020. Um, but in 2020, so much happened. There was so much loss. Um, you know, there was a lot that was going on in Nigeria and all over the world. It felt like there was no room. You know, we've spoken about breathing. It felt like there was no room to breathe. It was like tragedy after tragedy. Um, so it's it's tough. And, you know, so, I mean, what a person does in that, at that point in time, I feel like the best thing to do is to cry out personally, you know, and you cry out to whoever you feel like you need to cry out to. Because I think the worst thing a person can do in those circumstances is to say, I can, I can do this on my own. I can deal with it on my own. Um, and again, I think 2020 was hard for a lot of people because I was fortunate to either be for the first part of the year to be holed up with my family and for the second part to be holed up with my husband. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know how people who were, you know, the people I, you know, I knew who were stuck on their own. Um, it, it must have been, you know, the worst time. But I think that if one is going through something that is shaking, you know, one's belief in, you know, just the way the world works, you've got to cry out, you know, and, and, and hope that you've, you know, you, you turn to the right avenues because of course turning to the wrong avenues um, mm -hmm. is a problem in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because that time for me in the beginning was so productive. Like, I lived by myself. I just really moved to Ireland. I mean, I moved here in 2019, but like I lived in a house on a dead end street. I was the last house. And then there was a stone wall. And on the other side of the wall was a convent. So it was very quiet on the other side of the wall. And I, I hadn't really made a lot of friends. And so then when yeah. lockdown happens, it's like none of my new friends want to hang out with me because like it's a risk and, you know, obviously they're going to yeah. let, you know, yeah. and um, so, but like spending all that time alone um, yet feeling completely connected to everybody. Cause that's what it was. Like you're forced into this small space, you know, or s smaller space than you're used to for most people um, confined in it in a way, but constantly pulsing with what's happening in the world, what's yeah. happening with literally yeah. everyone. Yeah. And I think that crying out is almost like a, like it's a birth into like the world of everybody, you know, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, we're all, we're all connected. Everything is like intertwined, which yeah. is like, Cardi, that you is know a what? spiritual the interesting thing you're saying about being connected, I think is that what saddened me about 2020 a bit was how divided I felt like we were, because I thought like, this is the first time I feel like the whole world is going through something together mm -hmm. like we're all going through it nobody is you know safe nobody is you know we're all going through it. whether you think it's real or it's no not real or whatever mm -hmm. like that didn't matter we were all going through it um so I completely agree with you about like connecting into the larger 
you know. Yeah, it was like the first truly globalized narrative. Like even mm. had like World War II, like World War II in Ireland was a neutral country. There's this great book of poetry called Mid-Century about this American traveling to Ireland during World War II and just sort of being in this neutral place and how it yeah. feels like the world can't even touch him, you know? Yeah. But I think this is a story that everybody shared. It didn't matter if they liked the story, like you said, or didn't like the story, it didn't quite suit them. They still had to hear about the story. Yeah. And I'm sure that there were some people that were relatively just not touched or unaffected by it in certain ways or probably certain insular communities or, you know, um, whatever, or, or maybe not insular, but um, maybe even nomadic communities that were just not as affected by it. But I do think that the that's actually a real powerful way to frame it is this is the first story we all told together. The first time we all had a hand in like creating a narrative and that's, yeah pretty mad like <laughs> if you think about it like we all became storytellers and everybody yeah. came up with their own theories of course yeah. and their own aspect that they liked and everything yeah so <clears throat> okay so let me just then like move then to the the forgiveness part uh, you know as as well like I mean I was thinking you know I, I've heard a few people ask you questions about oh like your book about the patriarchy and all that and you're like I wasn't really thinking about that <laughs> you know <laughs> um which is it is kind of like I mean obviously like that's that's a good you know uh thing to turn to to examine investigate think about but I could also sense like oh this is something that's getting overlaid on this book a lot but interestingly then Heard you talk about corporal punishment in schools, um, abuse in schools. There's police in the novel um, who are obviously abusing their power, um, exacting fines and so forth. And I was thinking, like, when you think about forgiveness, is it yeah. is it related to this? Is it related to? I mean, sort of a powers and principalities argument, like look, we're like, if we just go at each other um, and condemn each other, we're going to miss out on the structures that are filtering down into our behaviors and sort of bringing about the behaviors this way. I think, you know, it's interesting you bring that up actually, because I think, um, you know, what you were saying about the patriarchy and all these things, because I think, you know, you know, they say forgive and forget. And I think I have a unique skill for forgetting. You know, there's no, <laughs> I think there's no, there's no, and I actually wrote something about it not too long ago, but I don't remember how I phrased it exactly, but there's no benefit to me mm-hmm. to being able to remind yourself of an event or something somebody said or did, you know, to such a degree that it's almost as if it's happening again. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a very, you know, uh, my husband's always telling me to work on it, but I have a very, I have a terrible memory. Um, and, but I think that because I have a terrible memory. I'm Connor, Connor Habib, by the way. It's just so we. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> oh, <laughs> 
Who's just teasing you? Who's just teasing you? I'm so sorry. I'm so dull. Anyway, no, I- um, um, yeah, no, 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 no. Hopefully, do you know what? I don't even want to pretend that I, I might not make that. That's why I wasn't sure. Like, it's the kind of... Because <laughs> you couldn't remember. I could make. No, I'm really terrible. I don't, you know, I remember I was, I was having this email exchange with someone and, you know, one day she corrected her name and I had to go up through her emails and not only had I been writing her name incorrectly, but I had changed it like twice. Like I was remixing her name. If she had put up with it probably for as long as she could have and then thought, you know what, maybe I should correct this girl. We're um, coming to the real reason why you have to read a book twice to review it because the first <laughs> time you forget it. <laughs> right? No, that is actually part of the reason why. But also to catch, also to catch up on what I might have missed, you know. Um, but yeah, so I, um, but the thing is because I don't, so if I'm annoyed at someone, it becomes after a very short period, it becomes blunt. Like my, my, my anger or my, you know, whatever I feel, how sad it, it gets, it gets blunt, but also I can't remember exactly what they said or did. Like I can remember it, but it's like, it's fuzzy. I can't hold on to it unless I keep reminding myself of it. Like, oh, it's because they did, or I write it down. And even when I say, let me write something down, I'm like, you know, Inka, why would you do that? Why are you trying to commit it to memory of what? And maybe that, maybe, you know, they talk about, you know, not being bitten, you know, twice or twice shy. And, you know, that's not to say that people don't sometimes do things that you need to be like, okay, this person is like this. I need to take account of it. Um, and I do think that when I get, certain vibes from a person over and over I'm like you know what this relationship might not necessarily be for me but I won't there won't be any I'll just let it slowly there won't be any resentment on my part I'll just be like look whatever this person is going through you know they're not um so I don't find it hard to forgive people because I can't I can I find I don't remember in its potency how what they did, you know, made me, made me feel. So I, I think that forgetfulness is a very mm-hmm. essential part of that process. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think you, it's, yeah, it's a really beautiful way to say it, actually. I mean, forgetfulness, it's almost a type of sleep, isn't it? Like, a, a, and sleep is almost like a type of a death in a way. It's like, if I, if I truly want to forgive somebody, that part in me that holds has to go to sleep, has to die almost because they have to be new to me. And memory is going to not let them be new to me in that aspect. So I actually have to let that go. So I'm thinking now, like, do you, (laughs) I mean, because I mean, you've written pretty convincingly characters who have resentments you know, like, can you, can you relate to that then? Or is that hard for you to even sort of tap into? I mean, you obviously you can relate to it somehow because you've portrayed it well, but yeah. Yeah, I can relate to it. I think, 
um, you know, a lot of it is for some things it's harder for there's some things that are harder for me than for other people. And there's some things that are easier for me. I think um, forgetting um, and, and, you know, just trying to, I'm also good at like, depending on the relationship, it depends, that will determine how much energy I put to, so I can forgive you and still walk away. You know, I can do that. I can also forgive you and try because I'll, and I do that by telling myself, look, the sum of what this person has done that's good does not outweigh the sum of what they've done that's bad. And, um, and because of that, I'll, you know, also I think um, I try to see, because the truth is that your loved ones will hurt you. That's, um, <laughs> that's a given. They will hurt you and you will hurt them, mm-hmm. you know? So if I, I don't really want to be judged at, you know, I do my best to be a good person. I do my best to be kind. But um, the other day I had a, disagreement with my sister and um with one of my sisters and she had gotten very upset because um my other sister and I had been teasing her and to be fair we 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 teased her pretty um we can get hardcore with our teasing because she's such easy pray when it comes to that um, and we think it's hilarious but it wasn't hilarious to her um so you know even though I thought it was funny and I thought it was light-hearted that's not how she saw it and I had to be able to respect that to her it's a big deal um and I might never be able to because I mean in my family we are we can get pretty you know we do all kind of tease each other so I may never be able to understand why you know, for her, it's it's this different thing, but that doesn't make it any less real and any less potent. Um, so I don't want her to judge me too harshly and be like, this is someone who clearly doesn't think, you know, who, who says things I don't like and who's hurtful. I don't want her to judge me too harshly. So we're not perfect. Um, and I think there's an element of giving people grace. So I, I, I do appreciate resentment, but I also think it's worth, um, because resentment actually, I feel like it hurts the person holding on to the resentment even more. Is this thing that just twists you up inside. Um, so I like to get rid of those feelings as quickly. I'm, I'm, I get very restless if I'm, if I'm, if I'm feeling, so if, for example, kind of you, if we had like a, um, long time friendship and then I was upset with you, like really upset with you, it would bother me. Like I would keep on, you know, talking about how Connor did this. And, you know, sometimes I would just be lying in my bed thinking, how could Connor do this? And, you know, what did I do? You're out there living your best life. Like you don't even know, you know, and I'm, tossing and turning so yeah not for me <laughs> well so i'm thinking about so resent it's it's interesting because like that resentfulness you know i think maybe this is like a faith thing again because like it's kind of the inverse response 
or like it's kind of an inverse of like faithfulness. Like if I hold a kind of faithful, loving vision of someone, that's a, a kind of permanent vision that allows me to sort of be with them, walk with them, understand them, even when they sort of deviate or derail themselves from their best you know, self or their highest aspect or whatever. And resentfulness is like, kind of like, I can't see anything other than that sort of veil of the thing they've done wrong. But then I'm thinking about the middle ground, which is in treasure where it's like creating the fantasy of somebody and hold that through happens through social media, but like, and holding the fantasy of someone whether or not they reveal themselves to be mm-hmm. <laughs> within that fantasy or not. It's like, um, it's kind of like some sort of weird distorted version of both. Cause at least in resentfulness, you kind of know the person, you know, <laughs> you know, resentment and in faithfulness, you know, but like, it's a, it's kind of an artificial or like shallow version of the, those two that we create, just creating that layer of fantasy. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I kind of stay away from, I try not to, I'm not even a big fan of meeting, like sometimes I have a desire to meet people that I look up to, Hmm. more often than not, I'm like, I'm okay, I'm okay kind of um, just imagining you know, there's certain things like when it, you know, when people started talking about how Enid Blyton had very racist themes and um, you know, I was a bit, you know, back in the day, I was a little bit like, oh no, you know, because I consumed so much Enid Blyton content. Um, and it's just one of these moments where I'm like, oh and gosh, I was so sad to learn that Anne Rice had passed because she's um, another person that in my mind, I was like, I'm going to meet her someday. Uh, but um, but yeah, more often than not, I think it is um, a bit, you know, the, how we project ourselves to people we've never met and to the world at large. Social media is dangerous. I try to treat it kind of like as a, at a I appreciate it and I appreciate its usefulness, but I try not to get sucked in by it. Um, I think it's, you know, what you said, this narrative isn't, and we all do it. That's the thing. Like, I'm not going to go on social media and be like, I mean, I suppose some people do. Some people go on and say like their worst moments and their best moments. And, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not, uh, I guess I'm old school. I'm, I'm used to you just kind of you know, my business is my business sort of thing. I don't feel like everybody needs to know. And also don't want to make people feel bad because if the truth is that like, you know, like lifestyle influencers who are going to the most exotic countries and living in the most exotic places and there's somebody who's looking at it who can't make that, that month's rent. And I mean, the person doesn't mean the other person any harm. Um, but, you know, I think it's allowing people to feel more depressed than they would otherwise feel because it's like, oh, I'm 25 and I just bought my first house. 
<laughs> and you're like 40 and trying to figure out, you know, how to make that month's rent and get your kids to school and do all the things you need to do. And I think it can be, and even for me, like sometimes I, I can't help but look at some writers and they're like, you know, book five just happened. And I'm like, oh no, I'm still struggling. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not helpful to me. So yeah. Do you, do you actually, I mean, this is something that's, I felt like a real kind of strange kinship with you when I was just doing research, hanging out with you, you know, without you knowing it really, you know, <laughs> reading, reading your stuff, looking up information on you. But I, I, you know, saw like, okay, wow. So she wrote this novel and that's how I know her. That's how most people probably know her initially, but also, there's the spoken word, illustration, short stories. And I was just thinking like that, that actually also stands outside of the kind of model that people usually think of. Like I, I find myself like super constrained by trying to funnel all the things I do into some sort of palatable marketed you know, version of things. And so whatever project I'm, you know, working on the most at the time, I'm like, well, yes, I'm sure I'm a novelist because I have this novel out. But then like when I went on the book tour, it's like all these people who listen to the podcast were like, I love your podcast. I'm like, oh, shit, I haven't really paid attention to it for the past two months. (laughs) So I need to get back on it and, you know, and make sure I have Oyinka and Brathwaite on it to uh, (laughs) know that I need to like get back on it and make sure I, I attend to it and tap that balloon up again. So it doesn't touch the ground. In some ways, I like I feel so frustrated by that because, I mean, I think I've always felt like anybody that tries to do everything that they want and create the things they want is bound to feel kind of lonely because people aren't going to have the inroads that sees the whole person, the whole sort of creative being, you know. And so I'm just bringing this up now. I'm thinking of it now because of your comment of like, you know, someone who wrote a novel and then they're on novel five, you know, like two years later or whatever. And I was thinking, wow, there must have been, there must be so much pressure because your book is so successful, like so much pressure on you to like produce the novel. And I was thinking, but she probably also wants to do all these other things still, or maybe just chill out and watch anime, you know, (laughs) like, (laughs) like, um, but like, she probably wants to do all these other things, but like now, like there's a real, like, you I'm not saying you don't want to write like the novel, speaking but to you today is actually going to help me because I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, you're right. I no, cause there's something you said and I feel like it feels like it's a message for me personally. Um, because you know what you said about how I do different things. And I think that I don't take that into account enough because um you know in my mind I'm like I haven't written a novel I haven't you know produced this novel and you know this many years has gone by but in that time I've actually I've worked on scripts and I've drawn and I've you know there are other things um that I've been doing and it actually makes a mockery of those things not to take them into account um, because they are time consuming and there are other things that I want to do as well. 
Um, and I think that um, the success of my sister's Zeroculite definitely affected me. But what you're saying about being constrained, it affected me because I was terrified of how the next book would be received and, you know, and all of that. But also it made me feel constrained because I knew what people wanted. I knew what, you know, my agents wanted. I knew what my publishers wanted. And I and I felt like I knew what at least the readers who had reached out. I felt like I knew what they wanted, what the expectation of the next book. And to some extent, I knew I wasn't going to give them what they wanted, but I was still trying to almost give them what they, you know, just give them a little bit of what they wanted. And I was struggling. I was struggling a lot because that's not a productive way to try and produce a creative work. Um, so I've just gone into the stage now where um, I was saying the other day that, you know what, I'm going to write the story I want to write actually I'm gonna I'm gonna and it might feel like I mean to anybody listening I'm sure you might feel like what what did she think she was doing in the first place but um you know more specifically the genre I want to write in um because I'm not I'm not limited as a writer I'm not limited to the one genre and I think being called a crime writer for the past couple of years has been has messed with my head quite a bit um so I've just started to come to the right realization that I need to I need to not worry about whether my publisher can pick it up. I need to not worry about, you know, any of those details. Whatever will happen will happen. I need to get back to the place where I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed what I was doing and I was passionate about what I was doing. And I need to get back to that place because um, that's the place that allowed me to produce my sister, the serial killer. Like I wasn't it's not a book that came out of me thinking it was going to sell. Um, that's not the circumstance in which I wrote that book. I would I would write it differently if I thought that, you know, it was going to be picked up. Um, so so yeah, it's actually been helpful you saying that um, that there are these other things because they are particularly passionate about my art, and you know I've been trying to and the other thing I mean. <laughs> recently I've been going back and forth with myself having conversations about taking animation courses sometimes I'm like why would you do that why would you do that you're a writer why would you <laughs> spend so much money on this other industry um but I love it I'm passionate about it and you know is maybe the world has taught us that we can only be one major thing and I don't know maybe that's not true yeah. I mean, I think <clears throat> everything you're saying is really touching to me. Uh, well, just that last part about the animation class, like I've been wanting to take us like sommelier, like wine tasting classes for a long yeah. time. And I'm like, well, so am I just going to not do this anymore? And I'll just move <laughs> into being like a sommelier. And I don't even know where yeah. that came from. It's not, I don't really drink that much, but I've been like yeah. really paying attention to wine so much lately when I drink it. It's so interesting. Like the challenge of, you know, how I taste things. And I think, you know, maybe that's a longing to do something with my body again, really, rather than, you know, doing this sort of creative act to see how my body responds to things would be interesting again. But I think you said it on a, in an interview I listened to, and you kind of said it now, like no one, like you don't ever get to have that moment again where you know that no one's going to pay attention you know, in your writing. And 
I mean, sure, of course, when you're writing, even when we write a diary, we imagine someone else looking in on it. Yeah. But that's much different than knowing that it's going to happen. And so it's almost like that feeling can't ever come to the writing again, ever, no matter. But maybe the feeling that can come, because I'm struggling now too, where, and everybody listening to this, just so you know, it's like, you write a book and it doesn't come out till like two years later. Like, I mean, yeah. it's just insane. So like by the time the book comes out, you feel like you need to have another one in the pipeline or you're yeah. like, <laughs> you're just yeah. completely screwed. You've wasted all that life. But of course you can't <laughs> because you're still gestating that book until it comes out. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think like, you know, have been having struggled with like the thing I'm trying to write now and the expectation I think at a certain point, you kind of look for the moment where the dream of the book, and I don't just mean like the aspiration, but actually that sort of dream, weird mood state of of writing overtakes the kind of like useful crisis of marketing, you know, the useful, like the dream of imagining the marketing and the people paying attention to it, you know? So like, I'd love to think of ways to sort of Maybe you can come up with one on the spot and save us both, but I'd love to think of ways to strengthen the dream of the book. You know, how do you strengthen? How do you feed the dream of the book? I mean, I know it's just writing it, of course, but you, you're you not writing 24-7 unless you're, mm-hmm. you know, like on Adderall and Stephen King and that era of his writing, you know, like, so how do you get into that strengthening of the dream is something that I'd, I'd love to figure out, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm still on that journey. I keep hoping, what I keep hoping for is that I come across a story, you know, and by come across, I mean, my head produces it. Um, But I come across a story that is compelling enough to me Mm -hmm. that I'm like, yeah, like it just, it makes the noise go away. I'm just like, you know what? I don't know what this is, but I'm interested in seeing it all the way through. Because I'm constantly starting stories, like I'm constantly starting stories, but I rarely see them all the way through. So Mm. what I'm kind of, you know, hoping for is one of these days when I'm at it, it will be a story that I'm like, yeah, you know, the character and the just drives me. I want it to be about that again, as opposed to, you know, because I was, I mean, I'm the kind of writer who needs to who's also like, oh, I wonder what she's going to do. Like, it's kind of the space that I need to be in to get excited. So, um, you know, just also kind of wanting to follow my characters again and and Mm -hmm. working Mm -hmm. as they're working it out, also working it out. Okay, what do I want? Um, You know, earlier on, you spoke about the responsibility of a writer. And I said that it had begun to dawn on me what it was. And I think that has also affected my writing because once you realize that you know all of a sudden I'm like okay I don't want to give this impression or I don't want you know I don't want it to seem like so for example what if I wanted to write a story where the woman is um let's say she's um harassed or um you know or she's she submits to her husband from the beginning of the story to the end you know, I'm like, okay, so how does that, what will people think about that in the, you know, in 2022? Is it okay to to write a story where, you know, she never gets out from under the foot of her 
husband? You know, what am I trying to say about that? Do I want to say anything or do I want it to just be like, that's what it is? Am I willing, like you talked about the marketing, you know, separating it from that. Am I willing, you know, you end up thinking, am I willing to have a discussion with Conor Habib about this, this character who never gets that? Do I want to have that? Do I want to talk about the patriarchy? You know, it's just, and then before I know it, I'm not writing because... <laughs> yeah, so this is my life now. That's what the next book is about. It's like... <laughs> It's just actually going through the horror show, ping like pinballing right. through my thoughts, right. you know, about what everybody's going to expect. But no, I mean, I think that's like, no, it's exactly right. I mean, I think it. You kind of know what people are going to pick up on. I mean, I will say that, like, actually, for whatever you know, resistance you're feeling about being labeled a crime writer, and like, my book is alternately marketed as literature or literary fiction, literary horror, horror, crime, and literary crime. So it's like <laughs> has its different sections. And so when I meet with audiences, you know, I'm always, I have to be like, okay, like, even if you don't like horror, like if the event is centered around horror, I'm like, but mm. still, like I just did something in the Museum of Literature here in Ireland. And I was like, and a bunch of people came up to me and they're like, well, I don't really like horror, but your book sounds so good. I'm going to get it. I'm like, Ooh. yeah, I, yes, I'm calling it horror. Cause I have read horror that influenced me, but like, no, it's just a novel, like just, you know, yeah. read it. But I think that those genres, however, horror and, and crime are actually completely liberating toward the responsibilities of the kind of marketing political economy, like, where yes, people will still ask you about patriarchy and in my case, like toxic masculinity and stuff like that, that I, I, those terms are not the terms I want to use in reference to the things I'm creating, but like, they'll still kind of let me do what I want because the mm. genre allows you to just go absolutely bonkers. Whereas if you're writing, you know, in a different sort of genre like you might feel even more constrained so i think that there is some freedom you know there at least you know hmm. and i don't know if you felt that freedom or if you're actually just feeling the constraint but and, and i don't want i'm not trying to like coerce you into writing another crime novel and i don't want to sound that way either. i mean the thing is that for me you know you spoke about how your book falls in different categories i think it depends you know, when they when a book comes out, they have to put it somewhere. They have to give it some kind of, you know, um, writing it. I didn't think my sister's joke that it was crime. I can see why it's categorized as crime because there are a lot of dead bodies in it. Um, <laughs> and murders and criminals. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and somebody is, you know, producing those dead bodies. But, um, you know, I mean, if pushed, I, I sometimes say it's noir. Mm. Um but um, I just, I think it's important for me to just not worry about genre at all. Like just write, write story. And then again, at the end, I mean, and these are the things I tell myself, but like when I hand it over, they will decide where it's going to go. You know, that's not something. So yes, there's some things that will happen. Like I'm, I love surrealism. I love magical realism, you know? So sometimes I'll write something into something and I know that it's, it's this or it's that, so it has more fantastical elements, but I don't want that to be, 
I just want to write the story that comes to me. So if, you know, I write about, you know, someone who's particularly short and has decided she's a, she's a goblin or whatever. I just want that to be the story that I write. And then you guys <laughs> can figure out what to do with it. But I want to be true enough to myself not to be helping them do what they're much better at doing than I am anyway. So I need to just worry about writing the truest story that I can write in this, you know, in this particular moment. Yeah. I mean, I think I was thinking about before what you said about, oh, I want to get that feeling again where I'm kind of following the characters and stuff. And I think that that's part of it too. It's like, if you pre-think where it's going to fit, then the most important thing for me, at least like with writing is making sure the characters are always a step ahead of me. Like I need to chase them down. Like they're like a desire almost like I need to follow them because they need to be able to surprise me. They need to be able to do things like a dream again, like a dream where I'm shocked by something that's happening, even though it's coming out of my own thoughts. Like that's completely weird to be surprised or scared by your own dream. It doesn't quite make sense, but it should be the same when I'm writing. I need to be following the thing and never quite able to catch up to it. And as soon as I think that that's it. It's like, as soon as you start thinking about all the other things that are going to happen with it, you're like kind of shouting at the characters, Hey, come back here, you know, like behave, you know, which is the exact opposite of what you want. You know, you don't want it to behave. You want it to be ahead of you. And in some way for me, at least I should say not you, but like, so, but I'm also then wondering, like, like I'm doing, it'll be the first time I do this, but I'm doing like a horror conference thing in like October. And I was thinking, well, the other aspect of this is that you end up in a lot of crime conversations, I'm sure. Yeah. And I'm wondering if those felt enriching or if you felt kind of out of place or maybe both, like maybe they were enriching because you felt out of place. I mean, I loved, that's the one thing about my sister's curricula. Like I loved, you know, I don't, I didn't, you know, prior to this, I'm ashamed to say, but I never thought about like book festivals I knew were just book festivals. I never knew about genre specific book festivals Mm -hmm. and the crime, I'm sure every genre is like this, but the crime, which is what I've been exposed to, the crime book festival, you know, are so much fun. The authors are so much fun. Um, You know, I've been to festivals where an author is describing a book and then they go, you know, and then he's killed and the audience goes, ooh. Because <laughs> <laughs> they love crime. Like that's, you know, um, so, I mean, that's been really fun. And, you know, even going to some festivals and seeing how creative they get with their decor and, um, you know, it's a good time. It's a good time. So I don't feel out of place. I always feel very, you know, it's always very exciting. It's always very fun um, to 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 be there and um, to be a part of that movement. I think one thing is, um, you know, there have been times where you know I'm like the only black writer, or you know, one of very few, or whatever. But um, I know that that will change as years go by, and it's not affected my enjoyment when I'm there in any shape, it's just, you're aware that, okay, this is still uh, a genre, an industry that needs more flavor. 
Um, but aside from that, you know, no, I love it. I love being a part of, of, of it all. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, it's the conversation thing for me, like I, that the event I did last week that was like uh, at the museum of literature, there was a reading right after mine. Cause it was a, a series of like events all in one night. And one of the readers was uh, Suad uh, Aldara, who's also Syrian. And I just, our books could not be more dissimilar. I mean, hers yeah. is like a memoir about <laughs> moving from Syria to Ireland, minus this weird Patricia Highsmith tense, you know, novel. But like, I was just like, thank God, like I have another like Arab writer to talk to at an event, yeah. you know, like it just felt really great. And I, I don't suppose a lot of that's going to be available to me as I start doing these things more and more. So I, I do feel that it's like a commonality that you seek that's just outside of the, the writing itself. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not seeking to be on, you know, like all the Arab writer panels or whatever for the content. I just want some of the similarity <laughs> like after the panel is over or, or you know or like hearing those familiar things like some of the things she was talking about in her own writing so I kind of I kind of get what you're talking about although I think it's probably even especially in the UK at the at these crime events probably feels even more insular I mean I haven't done a lot of events with other people yet either so mm. it, it probably is a bit different so okay I wanted to talk a little bit more about this story, One Chance, that you wrote, which is called The Horror Story, Um, because in it, basically, there's violence happening that people see, but they kind of don't care about. Like, um, in other words, like there's someone that views all the violence happening and she just kind of moves on. And there is a group of people that knows that they're going to sort of covertly engage in violence in some way but they've all kind of agreed to it for one reason or another. And I was thinking about that um, as opposed to a way a lot of horror stories are constructed, which is um, you're trying to get someone to believe that the horror is happening. Like if there's a werewolf, you're like, there's a werewolf out there, you know? Um, And that's like 50% of the movie until it's undeniable that the werewolf (laughs) is there and then everybody's running away from it. You know, and so there's so much about there's so much theological stuff about horror in its own way, because it's like about getting people to believe the reality of the thing that's there and intense and would shatter their view of what's real and what's not real. But I think with this story, it's the the flip. It's like, oh, no, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are kind of on the same page about what's about to happen and and, and what is happening. So it's that there's a, it's not a struggle of belief. It's a struggle in getting people to respond, respond properly to what is, what is happening, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when I was, you know, it was a commission piece. So they came and they said they wanted a horror story. And my initial reaction was, <laughs> I'm not really a horror writer, but I thought, you know what, I know how to create dark. I'm just going to give it a go. I'm going to have fun with it. Um, and the beauty about you know, I think I'm not a writer who I'm not great at build up. I'm working on it, but I think I I'm better at starting from the heart of the action, which and that's a great skill to have if you're writing a short piece. Um, so that was one thing, finding a way to 
like you said, have a horror, but started, you know, not not having that thing where it's like, oh, is it happening? Isn't it happening? Is it in her mind? Did, did they really hear that door, you know, without all of that? Because um, I didn't really even think I had the room to do that. Um, but I think a lot of it is just creating a horror story in a Nigerian setting um, and have it, but not the type, because Nigeria has horrors, but I didn't want that type of horror. I wanted something, I wanted to, you know, I had an opportunity here to just play around. And in um, Lagos, a lot of people, um, one of uh, one of the more common forms of public transport are downfall buses, which are these yellow buses that are just a nuisance to the road in general. They're just a nuisance. Um, and the phrase one chance, so even that's the name of my story, but it's a common phrase in um, Nigeria because basically the idea of one chance is if you, um, I wonder I wonder if it's a one chance to escape kind of thing. But anyway, point is that some, there's some of these buses are, um, you know, maybe they've got like, um, they're not supposed to be normal buses, like maybe the in the driver and, you know, one or two other people in the buses have colluded to steal or to take the bus, um, the passengers to um, another location and maybe commits some crime or, or other. Um, so people generally know of, it's very, well, I don't, I will say it's rare, but I don't know if it's rare or not, but like, it's just something people are aware of that you've got to like, so when you get on a bus and maybe at certain hours in certain places, um, you've got to kind of be at alert so that, you know, basic, I think that's probably where the one chance thing comes up from, because you might have just the one opportunity to get off that bus if it's the wrong bus, um, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where, so I just thought, why not take that idea and just push it? Because it's already a pretty horrific idea that you might find yourself on a bus and, you know, and some and never be seen again. It, it kind of writes itself in that sense. But I thought, why not just push it and have this girl, you know, do these things, like betray the people who are, you know, pretty close to her and and just play with it that way. So that's where that kind of came from. I, I I did have fun with it in the end, which, you know. Well, I was just, I, I love that you, um, I love that you just, I love that you wrote a story, a horror story that reflects traffic. Cause like I said, I don't know that much about Lagos, but I know like the traffic is pretty infamous there. So yeah. when you thought about being like, uh, like stuck in a vehicle that you can't yeah, get out hours. of. Yeah. Yeah, exactly forever you know like it's <laughs> sort of nightmare of that story but um yeah well listen i i could talk with you forever um for an extended uh bus trip um for sure <laughs> um but uh i think we'll end here and i just want to I'm looking forward to whatever it is, whether it's uh, an animated movie or a novel or whatever it is that comes out next that you do. Um, and I just so appreciate having this conversation with you. I think, um, by the way, hi, thank you. Thank you so much, Connor. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And thanks everybody for listening. Bye now. <laughs>